and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrett. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Brandon Dillard. He's the manager of historic interpretation at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, where he's worked for 10 years. So Brandon, hi. 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 Thank you. Brandon, tell me a little bit about the work that you do at Monticello and the roles that you've taken at Monticello. Sure. We met uh, when I was hired there, and I was initially hired to be a tour guide, a part-time tour guide. Uh, And I have a degree in philosophy, uh, and I constantly make the joke that I graduated college and the philosophy firms didn't hire me. Um, (laughs) So I I went to be a bartender where I learned a lot about interacting with people. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy talking to people. It's probably the part of my work and all the different jobs and, and things that I've done throughout my life. That's like the one strain that, that continues to go throughout all of it. And so I worked as a tour guide for a couple of years and as a bartender, uh, and then a full-time position came available at Monticello. I applied and, and I got that because I just love doing this, this job. And I, I quickly fell into, uh, mostly focusing on the stories at Monticello that uh, I felt at the time were not being told enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they were being told, I felt that they weren't being told in a way that was sensitive to the hardships and the realities uh, experienced by the people whose stories were mostly left out. And of course, I'm talking about people who were enslaved uh, mm-hmm. by Thomas Jefferson and his white family. And, you know, over time, I... Uh, just learned more and more about the people in bondage at Monticello, learned about their struggles and their triumphs. And uh, it became uh, a real career path for me to focus not only on, um, you know, the marginalized voices in Monticello, but marginalized voices overall. And so I went back to grad school and I I got a degree studying um, memory and the way that historic sites and uh, power kind of run together. And now my job uh, as manager of historic interpretation is sufficiently vague that I can wear a lot of different hats. Uh, (laughs) But the biggest part of my job is that I work with the tour guides uh, and I work with the interpretive team and sometimes with, uh, you know, communication, sometimes with curatorial, but really focusing on some of these uh, messages uh, about how we talk about slavery, how we talk about uh, the indigenous peoples of the United States, you know, the Americas during the colonial period how we talk about women, uh, how we talk about all the ways in which power and uh, the intersections of memory play out at a place like Monticello. Having you on the podcast, I thought this would be a great opportunity to use a letter from an enslaved woman at Monticello, um, which I was aware that this letter existed uh, when I worked there as a tour guide, but I didn't really do much of a deep dive into it. So it was kind of fun to be able to do a little bit of research uh, and find out a little more about Hannah and her life and Jefferson. Um, so coming into this, wh- how familiar are you with Hannah um, as a person? Her life uh, is a fascinating one from what I know about it. I'm not as familiar with her as I am some of the people who were enslaved at Monticello. Right. But I do know uh, enough about her and her son that um, I think we can have some bit of a conversation about it. All right. So a, a little bit of context of the letter. Um, this is from an enslaved woman named Hannah to Thomas Jefferson. The date is 15th November, 1818. So this is during Jefferson's retirement. He's pretty old at this point. Um, Hannah was a laborer at Tomahawk Plantation, which was part of that estate at Poplar Forest. Um, I actually found a hand-drawn map of the, well, I didn't 
I mean, I found it in my research, but there's a, I will put the hand-drawn map that Jefferson drew in the show notes. So you can take a look at that if you're interested. When Jefferson visited Poplar Forest, Hannah worked as the cook uh, and washerwoman, as Jefferson put it. But when he wasn't visiting, she was a field laborer. So she was switch roles. Um, at the time she wrote this letter, she's 48 years old. She's married to a man named Hall, uh, or Hal, and a mother of six. She uh, was born at Monticello, but she moved, Jefferson moved her at some point to Poplar Forest. Um, and she'd been living there for about 25 years at this point. A little bit of background about Poplar Forest, the house. It was in the shape of an octagon because Jefferson was weird like that. Uh, it was sort of his retreat vacation home. He visited usually at least once a year um, from 1809 to 1823. So he was back and forth quite a bit. Uh, and after 1823, his grandson, Francis Epps, along with his wife, Elizabeth, moved into the house permanently. I'll also sit, have more show notes about a little bit of the timeline of the house, which the Poplar Forest uh, folks have made a really interesting timeline on their website for this. So Hannah wrote this letter in November 1818 after she heard that Jefferson was not going to make his usual fall visit because he was sick. Uh, he had been there earlier in the year, mid-April, with his granddaughter, Ellen. Uh, and during that visit, Ellen writes a letter back home, and she refers to Hannah as Aunt Hannah. She says that Aunt Hannah asked for Mary by name, which Mary should take as a compliment. Jefferson was back at Monticello by May 10th, so it was sort of a short visit. Uh, and then he got very ill. Jefferson visited Warm Springs in August of 1818 to relieve his rheumatism uh, and decided to stay there for three weeks, where he took 98-degree baths three times a day for three weeks, and he ended up breaking out in boils, uh, probably a staph infection. Again, back to that early 1800s medical advice was generally just bad. It was just bad. Uh, so they thought that hanging out in these hot springs was good for your health, good for rheumatism, but they're filthy springs. They don't know what germs are yet. Jefferson gets a staph infection. They treated him with mercury when he got back from Monticello, and he actually almost died. So he was planning another fall visit to Poplar Forest, but he didn't make it, uh, and he was actually near death for uh, quite a while. He didn't fully recover until December. So this is written while Jefferson is very, very sick, uh, and Hannah is writing it to him because they had been planning on him coming to visit, and she must have found out that he was ill. Does that all sound about right, Brandon? It does. And I was really, I wasn't 100% sure that that was the sickness that we were talking about. So <laughs> yeah. I'm really, I'm really pretty happy that it is because, <laughs> wow, what an insight into life 200 years ago, huh? Like <laughs> yeah. one of the most powerful, wealthiest men in the nation at age 75 is breaking out into boils and very uncomfortable places. <laughs> uh, and almost dies because they feed him mercury. It's it is a miracle that we have survived as a species. It really is. <laughs> Something that I like about the way that the Jefferson Retirement Series does their annotation is they include little stories, and you can see a little bit of a sense of humor sometimes in the footnotes, and that just the poetic description of Jefferson's boils <laughs> and his carriage ride back from the hot springs just really is sort of visceral. I really recommend that you read that. Oh, it's priceless. You know, I, I, there was a, a Virginia Association of Museums conference at Hot Springs for some years back, and there was a whole host of Monticello nerds floating in that hot spring having a conversation about Jefferson's boils. Uh, it was one of the weirdest moments of my life, but pretty pretty funny. Uh, totally worth it. We all were fine. Uh, none of us had any, any negative repercussions. Wow, you're just, yeah. <laughs> this is the same water that gave Thomas Jefferson boils. 
soak it, soak it in, everybody. We are living history right now. So I think that gives sort of sufficient context. Uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and read the letter. It's a pretty short one. Um, but so I'm just going to read Hannah's letter to Thomas Jefferson. November 15th, 1818. Master, I will write you a few lines to let you know that your house and furniture are all safe, as I expect you would be glad to know. I heard that you did not expect to come up this fall. I was sorry to hear that you was so unwell you could not come. It grieved me many time, but I hope as you have been so blessed in this that you considered it was God that done it, and no other one. We all ought to be thankful for what he has done for us. We ought to serve and obey his commandments that you may set to win the prize and after glory run. Master, I doubt my ignorant letter will be much encouragement to you, as no, I am a poor, ignorant creature. This leaves us all well. Adieu. I am your humble servant, Hannah. Uh, I want to point out here that last sentence she says, Master, uh, I am disagreeing with the uh, transcription on this one. The uh, official transcription says, Master, I do not. My ignorant letter will be most encouragement to you. And I've looked at the words and I can completely understand why they transcribed it that way. But it could also be doubt with a W, D-O-W-T. So I, I see why they made the decision. This is certainly in no way trying to start a beef with the Jefferson Papers for their transcription. But just because I doubt my ignorant letter makes so much more sense than I do not my ignorant letter. And also she doesn't blend any other words together like that throughout. I think I'm going to say that this is my, my academic take. As she said, Master, I doubt my ignorant letter. <laughs> well, I have on, on good authority from the head of the Jefferson Papers that they welcome open dialogue. <laughs> so so I heard on a live stream last week. <laughs> well, I know people can be prickly about this coming from the world of documentary editing. I've heard I've heard it's ruthless in there. I'm uh, I'm wary of you guys. You look like a bunch of toughs <laughs> hanging out around the libraries. So, how would you interpret this letter, Brandon? So there's so much there's so much going on in this letter, right? And I think that um you know getting back to your setup for it, you know, you're talking about um, Ellen Jefferson, uh, later Ellen Jefferson Coolidge, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, Ellen Jefferson referring to Hannah as Aunt Hannah, and Ellen like just beginning to unpack some of the like very complicated like terms that are endearing and diminutive, but totally paternalistic and offensive, yep. and just super loaded today. And it's really interesting to have to have these conversations with people who don't have the the background uh, in knowing why these are such loaded terms. You know, like you right. and I can talk about this in a way that's different. But when people like visitors to one of these sites like Poplar or Monticello, they're like, oh, they must have really loved her. And it's like, ah. Um, t- so to quote Cinder Stanton, while genuine affection between masters and slaves surely existed, I, you know, and that's true. I'm sure that sometimes human relationships were human relationships, but considering the power imbalance between a master and a slave, you know, someone owned by another human being, you know, the ways that these, these terms were used were so charged. And, you know, I mean, the most egregious of course is like mammy or daddy. Um, and, you know, we know that both of those terms were used at Monticello by Jefferson's white grandchildren about people who Jefferson enslaved. Mm-hmm. And we do have a handful of letters from people who Jefferson held in bondage to him. But this one is telling in a, in a really interesting way because of the position that she takes. And I think, you know, there's so many ways we could interpret it. Uh, I think that 
my hunch is to interpret it towards some genuine spiritual connection. You know, I think mm-hmm. that uh, she, the way that she writes about faith and the way that she writes about God in this letter, I think indicates that, uh, you know, there's a good possibility this is a person who's motivated by uh, faith. Right. Um, the way she positions herself as the humble and obedient servant, you know, there's so much to that, right? And I'm like, that's a common way in which people addressed one another you know jefferson mm-hmm. himself often signed his letters your your obedient servant right that's yeah, the title of my podcast i've i've heard <laughs> i've heard and i think i i mean there's just so much to it right mm-hmm. but in this case she is literally yeah. his servant right like that's what he would call her you know and we we know today that uh servant is often even used as a euphemism to hide the fact that we're talking about people who are held in bondage mm-hmm. i just think that it's fascinating, you know, and the fact that she wrote it, that she talked to him about work first, you know, mm-hmm. your house, your things are okay. Like she's clearly uh, acting in, in her capacity as the woman who's in charge of the house. And, you know, what is she really saying underneath all that, you know, and, and that's the question, right? That's the question that um, historians have to think through every time they look at one of these primary documents. And somebody like me as an interpreter, you know, I get to uh, take the safe route out, which is to say, we'll never really know, right? Uh, But historians say this or this. Uh, So, you know, I think that there are multiple interpretations, but no matter how you look at it, this letter is just a really rich example. It it, It demonstrates the lie of slavery, right? You know, slavery was supposed to say that human beings were not human. And here, here Hannah is saying, very human, complete agency on my own, and, and I am acting in a way that says everything that you say about black people, Thomas Jefferson, is wrong. Yep. I, one of my, my personal favorite part is when she says, she finishes up with saying, I'm a poor, ignorant creature. So I think that's interesting because there's, I'm your humble servant, which is a thing that white people also, everybody writes, you're most obedient, all of that humble servant. But she is literally like servant- meaning slave that's her position and when she says i'm a poor ignorant creature she's sort of playing into that expectation this is what you're supposed to say to the person who owns you this is what jefferson wants to hear but then she says adieu in french right right right. (laughs) in this beautifully well-written letter that she writes uh with beautiful handwriting and a french signature she's performing both at the same time yeah i mean so one of the things that you know we we've had this conversation before you and i about like agency and what that means, you know, and, um, you know, I can, I can remember pretty explicitly, uh, early on in our careers at Monticello actually. So this is years ago when we were both young and, uh, full of life and, uh, someone made a comment of like, Oh, we're, we're giving agency back to the enslaved. And I can remember you saying, no, you're not, (laughs) you're not, you can't give that away because you can't take that away. You're recognizing the agency of people who are enslaved. And here Hannah is really underscoring her own. Yeah. Um, and I also, I think, I, I again, I don't know Hannah. Um, and I know that religion was an incredibly important part of a lot of enslaved people's lives. But I think the way that enslaved people use religion as a way of expressing themselves and agency is sometimes underlooked. It's sort of like, I guess the point I'm trying to make is when she says something along the lines of, like, I'm sorry that you're sick, but it was God that done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is she really saying there? <laughs> yes, and we ought to be thankful for what he has done for us. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, 
that there's definitely an 18th century everybody was talking would write as this is what god wills we have to get over our own expectations for what life will be and submit completely to god's will that is something that comes up whenever anything bad happens in a letter from the 18th century the first thing you have to say is of course i'm happy that god did this to me i have to submit to it which is different um from the perspective of an enslaved person as well but when an enslaved person is talking about how much they love god and what things will be like in the afterlife to a person that has enslaved them sometimes there's an undercurrent of you're not going to be ending up in the same afterlife as me right <laughs> it's a lot to read into a letter and particularly this one there's just not enough uh, and i don't know enough about hannah to put that much into it but there's a lot of times where you can see i like the the people the enslaved people who give their children all biblical names but it's like moses uh right. it's all the, the, right. the names of people who escaped slavery at at mount vernon there's um a child named philadelphia a free city uh <laughs> they named their child so you can see this sort of antagonism playing out in a really subtle in the ways that that people were able to do it uh, yeah, I love that seeing it as an as an act of resistance, um, which is of course how you know how enslaved people survive the horrors of of their bondage, uh, just these everyday acts of resistance against this system that tried to deny them uh, who they were. Uh, I so I don't know if your interpretation's right, but I'll buy it. I like it. Um, <laughs> it's certainly a good possibility. The Jefferson Papers made a footnote that when she says. You may set to win the prize and after glory run. That is a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 9.24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. Huh. I like the way she puts it. That's just, I guess, in there is a fun fact. And I'll throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it's fascinating. Which also indicates, of course, that like, this is a woman who's well read with the Christian Bible. Yes. Um, and I think that, you know, you're, you're talking about, spirituality and what that means for enslaved people you know at monticello there's all kinds of interesting uh evidence for the popularity of christian faith for exactly the reasons that you just noted you know there's this message of enslavement you know the the jews out of egypt and uh freedom and god being on their side and you know there's also pretty interesting evidence of the persistence of some kind of traditional uh, spirituality and uh, medical practices that might stem to Africa. You know, mm. as uh, we've got um, people living at Monticello, for the most part, they're four or five generations removed from, from capture. Uh, so, you know, you're talking about people who have lived as Americans um, for generations. Um, now, not citizens, of course, but have lived on the continent of North America. And uh, just very fascinating evidence like you know i mean you know about the cowrie shell that archaeologists found and you know and a cowrie shell exists only in the indian ocean which means that uh yeah it's possible that like somebody just bought that and it had showed up there but probably not right like it probably was passed down and, and held very dear uh from one generation to the next and understanding the cultural uh ramifications of of what a cowrie shell means it's often misinterpreted as like a form of currency but uh, that's that's a very uh, Western capitalist way of describing it. It's not currency. It has spiritual value. Uh, and the gift itself is connected to the spirit of the giver. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of spiritual persistence is amazing. And then a little bit of research that I, I briefly did about Hannah before we had this conversation indicates that she, too, would uh, seek out the help of a traditional African healer uh, mm. during times of illness. 
um, which in Jefferson's letters are often referred to as conjurers, um, because you know the dominant European medical practice at the time is really what you should have adhered to. You got to you got to get that mercury for That's your right. boils. That's right. Maybe uh, you get a sore throat, cut open your veins. How many pints of blood did they bleed out of Washington? Uh, oh, I don't know the exact number, but he died. He died. He sure did. You know, leeches. Uh, you know, I, I talk about this with the Evans family, you know, because Jupiter Evans, also enslaved by Jefferson, is a man who sought the, the help of a traditional African healer when he was ill. Uh, and, you know, thinking about weighing your options there with the dominant European medical advice of the time, I you know, I mean. You might as well. I. And, and this is also an area where historians and documentary editors are complicit because they'll write about Jefferson called for the best doctor that he could find, which, like we know now, was, again, just absolutely nothing. They're still dealing with basically humors at this point. Like, there was hardly, like, like... Well, he, he knew it, right? Didn't he say, <laughs> yes. if, uh, if I ever see two doctors together at a time, I look into the sky for buzzards. Like, he knew that <laughs> medicine was crap. Uh, no, he was also a hopeful guy, progressive, thought that maybe, you know, medical science would get us there, but he knew it wasn't there. Yeah, it wasn't there yet. Uh, but then, uh, so so historians will be like, well, this was the real doctor. And then literally I've seen, like, historians and documentary editors identify because the this healer was a black person as a witch doctor. Like, Jefferson right. might call them a conjurer, but, like, we're the historians that are using this language at the same time so it just backs that up i mean honestly like benjamin rush was a witch doctor essentially at this point right. he's not doing much better well you know i mean yes bringing up benjamin rush uh who in his own writings about um people of color uh wrote an essay where he said that the black color as it is called is derived from a form of leprosy and he believed huh. that it could in fact be cured i mean that that kind of stuff is just like looking real deep into the ways in which like enlightenment based racism would totally influence uh, these people and the impact that that has 200 years later, you write about, are you talking about how historians are complicit? You know, one of the things that I see pretty often is that, you know, uh, enslaved African-Americans uh, found solace in the Christian faith and also in African superstitions and mythologies. It's like, yep. It's just this fascinating form of like cultural dominance that's so subtle. It's in the language, you know, it's in the, you know, I'm sure that you've talked about this before, but even the basic stuff, like talking about a slave versus a person who is enslaved. Yes. You know, these, these subtle ways in which we can use the power of language to challenge those dominant narratives that have thrived for so long. And sometimes this, the subtle ways in which the power of language keeps us trapped and these mm -hmm. ongoing legacies of, of racism and power dominance. I mean, if you look at a, a lot of the old his doctor, documentary editing projects, not to put my own field on blast, but to absolutely do that, they'll identify just about every person that's named in passing and try to find somebody's birth and death date and all this stuff like that. But when somebody mentions an enslaved person by name, even if we know their birth date, we know people's birth and death dates and their full full names, they're not identified as people hmm. within the volume. It sometimes will just say a slave, like that's all you need to know about somebody. The institution of slavery, obviously the whole point of the institution was to humanize someone and then we continue this dehumanization in subtler ways yeah and i mean hey that's not that's not just documentary editing right like <laughs> there are some historic house museums that you can go to today where they will talk to you all about the happy servants serving right. their masters uh and this like antebellum moonlight magnolias like nostalgia 
that I think this country is finally starting to reckon with a little bit. At least we've seen some evidence of that recently. But it's pervasive. And, you know, when I started working in this field, uh, you could hear similar kinds of things. And the ways in which it's it's radically changed in the last decade make me happy. I'd like to see it keep going. Obviously, we're not there yet, uh, but strides have been made. And I think that, um, you know, I've said this before. I probably said it to you. I, you know, we've talked about it. It's just a, it's just another way to look at this as a form of race dominance because white historians and white people are starting to recognize that maybe this whole uh, antebellum nostalgia thing isn't that great and maybe there's something that's really complex and bad about the ways in which people talk about racism uh, which you could have read in anything written by W.E.B. Du Bois 125 (laughs) years ago right James Baldwin was saying the same thing 70 years ago Lord was saying the same thing 40 years ago, right? And it's like white mm-hmm. historians and white scholars come up with these radical new ideas that they really could have read from a black scholar a century ago. Yep. Yeah. Not totally. to not to call out all the white historians because there's plenty of people who are totally radical there too, right? But you know, <laughs> and and it's completely racist to lump people together, but uh, it's not racist to recognize the power. And it, it's it's uh, I would humbly hope that it is an anti-racist act to explicitly call out the fact that many white people are only just now starting to wake up to something that uh, people of color in this country have been decrying for centuries. Well, I uh, I think a lot of looking at documents from this time period, like Jefferson and Ellen and all of the granddaughters, and I feature a lot of these granddaughters' letters quite a bit in this podcast, um, what you notice is when you come at them from the perspective that's different from the author of the letter's perspective, which is that enslaved people are actual full human beings, you realize that they are, the enslaved people are telling everyone that I'm a human being constantly. Constantly. <laughs> and pe- People like Thomas Jefferson and his family are just choosing not to listen because it doesn't fit their worldview and they can't imagine it and they just ignore it. So when you read these letters that you have 200 years distance between, you're like, come on, Thomas Jefferson. Like, you're a smart person. You can figure this out. Why are you, like, ignoring the fact that your enslaved people are rebelling and running away and telling you a million times that slavery is wrong? And you yourself know that slavery is wrong. Like, what's wrong with you? And the thing that sort of hits you when you're looking at somebody 200 years ago is you're like, oh their mistake is that they are not actually listening to enslaved people as human beings. And then when you think, move that up 200 years of our current lives as white people who don't always have to listen to a black people's perspective of things, the same thing happens. You're just not listening to black people talk about their own experiences in their own lives. Right. <laughs> and you're just ignoring it because it's coming from a different source. And I think sometimes it's easier to see Thomas Jefferson being stupid and see this is wrong than to see it in your own actions. This isn't something in the past, right? This kind of racism is pervasive. And the incarceration rates among African-Americans compared to whites in this country, there's no need to talk about it. Just looking at it shows that racism is such a pervasive and ongoing thing. And I think that when we look at Jefferson in particular, that like, it's not about Jefferson, right? And this is this is something that uh, I've said a few times and I realize can be kind of misconstrued. When I say it's not about lionizing or demonizing Jefferson, what I'm saying there is I'm not saying you shouldn't demonize slavery. Like slavery is abhorrent and Thomas Jefferson made a personal choice to live a life of luxury based on the exploitation of human beings. But 
why? Mm. Like you just said, like he's a smart man. Like say what you want about Jefferson. He was not dumb, right? right? There has to be a reason, a cultural reason why he could have these thoughts about people just based on the color of their skin. And that reason is is racism. Yeah. And you know, like Ibram Kendi, you know, he writes about this and stands from the beginning. Like it's very clear. Like this has always been there and this is the answer. But if you look at white historians writing about Jefferson even 15, 20 years ago, it's like, oh, he's a great mystery. We'll never understand why it's such a mystery. <laughs> it's like, did you read Notes on the State of Virginia? Because it's not a mystery. He's, oh, yeah. he's, he believes that he is morally right because he was a racist. And if we're going to understand like why these things are still persistent problems today, we have to face that racism. And what I love about what you're doing here is that like that racism is there and Jefferson is completely blinded by it. But you're so right that every one of these letters is a way of looking at how someone is saying, nope, you're wrong. You're wrong. Yeah. You know, like Thomas Jefferson says that black people can't care for themselves. And here they are saying, well, I'm still caring for all of your stuff <laughs> and you just reminding you. Hope you're recovering well being cared for by a lot of black people. Uh, well, I um, do want to get into before we finish. Um, so you, at the beginning of this podcast, you told me a little bit about Hannah's son. Um, there's a story there. So uh, I just wanted to ask if you could elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a horrifyingly tragic story um, that really underscores everything we've just been talking about. You know, I think the most visceral acts of resistance uh, of enslaved people against uh, those who enslave them, obviously, uh, escape. You know, mm -hmm. es escape is something that we talk about a lot in our culture. Um, and I think a lot of the memory of slavery focuses on escape. But every now and then there was violent rebellion, right? There was violent resistance, uh, which is something that, again, uh, historians and especially white historians in this country are complicit and uh, marginalizing the stories of black resistance, violent black resistance. Hannah's son, uh, William, uh, who Jefferson refers to as Hannah's Billy, uh, he resists enslavement. He attacks an overseer. He's, he's young. He's really young. He's like uh, a teenager, I think, when this happens. And if we think about that and really look at all the trauma that this, this young man experienced throughout his life, just the violence that was constantly around him, the threat of violence, uh, and the forced labor that existed only through those kinds of abuse. Uh, it's amazing that these stories are not told more often because they did happen a lot. And of mm -hmm. course, the retribution that takes place from uh, enslavers was was pretty horrifying. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, he attacked an overseer. The overseer uh, was not. Uh, very badly hurt. He was arrested uh, along with a couple of other people uh, who were eventually acquitted due to lack of evidence, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Billy was branded in the hand, so he was burned in the hand uh, and lashed and then sold. And uh, from Hannah's perspective, here we have the most uh, tragic aspect of, of enslavement. You know, Frederick Douglass wrote about this. He said the greatest fear for a slave is not the fear of being beaten. It's not the fear of death. It's the fear of family separation. And so Jefferson is a man who, for all of his uh, rhetoric on enlightenment amelioration of the people who he held in bondage, would nonetheless use this family separation as the ultimate tool. And he did that to Hannah. Uh, you know, he sold her son. 
because he violated that most uh, sacred of lines, which is that uh, if you are black in America, you are not allowed to rebel for your own freedom, despite the fact that Thomas Jefferson was a man who literally fought a war against other people because of freedom. Rebelled against the state at the time very (laughs) very explicitly um very very much treason (laughs) very much treason right like (laughs) no way around it it was treason that's what he did uh you know and if we lost that war uh we being america here uh he would have been very dead Mm -hmm. and going back to uh the previous mention of ellen referring to hannah as aunt hannah so here we have the immediate breakdown of that oh, uh, somebody might hear that Ellen referred to Hannah as Aunt Hannah and say, oh, look how close this family was. Well, if you're really close with this woman, could you imagine selling her son so that she can never see her own child again? That immediately shows what a facade, this entire language, the paternalistic language of, oh, these people are my family that I can punish in the most horrific way possible and do punish when my power is challenged. That's such an indication of like how warped people were by this system okay so i think we've gotten into some good stuff again this is a short letter uh this is something that's mostly just about hey just letting you know thomas jefferson that your furniture is all well sorry about the boils (laughs) god bless hannah uh but once you dig into these letters there's always some interesting vein that you can get into and find something else and that's one of the reasons that i want to feature these women's letters in particular, um, because sometimes these aren't the ones that get cited as often. Is there any other sort of closing thoughts, anything you think we didn't get into enough, Brandon? You know, I feel pretty, pretty passionately about a lot of this. Obviously, you know that you do too. But this whole discourse that's happening in our country right now about what history means and like what history should be, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, some fictionalized mythical narrative of, uh, you know, concrete men on horseback or, uh, you know, whether it's like, nah, tear it all down. Um, I'm hoping that there's a place for this kind of conversation. Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I hope you, uh, appreciated this conversation. I know you have many similar conversations to this every day, so I hope there's at least (laughs) something interesting in this one for you. (laughs) Uh, It was absolutely interesting. And um, I do have these conversations a lot, but uh, I don't get to have them with friends often enough. So it's always, it's always good to have it with, uh, with you, Katie. And, you know, since you've left Monticello, you're in this whole other world now. So I get to hear about something that's not Jefferson, even though you did call me to talk about Jefferson this time. It's still that, uh, you know, we can uh, talk about the broader world of the 18th and 19th century. And I'm always grateful for that. I always like to learn something new. Well, thank you very much. And everybody listening, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Check the show notes for more notes and the text of this letter that you can read along with if you're interested. And as ever, I'm always your most obedient and humble servant.